HSD are experts in delivering tech solutions to the vet sector, working with clients such as the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, ASQA and the VRQA. HSD understand the complexities of VET, its systems and data. We specialise in systems integration, customer relationship management systems, Microsoft platforms and migrating organisations to the cloud. So whether you're looking for advice on integrating your systems, meeting your data reporting requirements or looking to gain insights into your stakeholders, HSD are here to help. Visit hsd.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. From Claire Field and Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 72, and it's been a while between episodes. Your podcast host has been a little bit crook, all good now, and back into it. Uh, But I would have liked to have got this episode out a bit earlier for you. And it's one of those episodes where if you're looking forward to a super exciting guest, I'm afraid you're stuck just with me. It's been a while since I uh, devoted a podcast to talking you through a particular issue, Um, but it's EdTech Week happening uh, in Melbourne this week. And I was lucky enough to be at the EdTechX Europe conference back in uh, June, back in London. And there were a number of things that I learned at that conference that uh, I wanted to share with you. There's a written version of my notes uh, that I took at the conference. I mean, that's available on my website, but it does run to a few pages, even though I tried to to be as succinct as I could. And I know that many of you spend all your days reading um, and you can download some ideas via the podcast while you're doing other things. So for those of you who are cleaning the house, mowing the lawn, heading off to work or going for a run, um, strap in, let's talk uh, EdTech. So the conference itself, if you haven't uh, been, um, it's just one day, but it's a really impressive uh, day. It's been running for a number of years, obviously with a, a bit of a switch to online and a break during COVID. And the opening keynote is, as is tradition, the two founders of EdTechX, Charles McIntyre and Benjamin Vedron Cloquet, who set the scene for where the EdTech sector is at and, crucially, some of the key issues, which then obviously shaped the, the rest of the day's discussion. So a couple of key data points to, to kick off. We're now at the point where for every $10 that's newly invested or spent in education, $1 is now being spent on EdTech and the sector, the EdTech sector, is now receiving three times the funding it was pre-pandemic. But this wasn't a conference that just embraced uh, all that there is, all the good that there is about EdTech. It was actually a really honest appraisal. Um, I was really inspired by the the honesty in looking back at COVID and how EdTech had had responded. 
And Vedran Cloquet used a phrase, he talked about the mass switch to online learning had been the regressive triumph of the lowest technology. And by that he means video conferencing and and PowerPoint or, or PDFs. So, yes, we all moved online and we could learn online, but we didn't move to an educationally rich online learning environment, which has caused problems, particularly in the schooling sector, with students falling behind now on average eight months, um, as well as uh, issues related to increasing rates of early school completion and a number of other health and mental health issues. He also talked about, and again, I really appreciated the honesty and the candor of it, that the sector needs, this is the edtech sector, needs to confront its business ethics with a growing problem of abusive marketing practices and some firms stealing users' personal data. I just thought it was really Again, impressive to call it out and start the day on that note. And uh, the two co-founders suggested that the sector will and should increasingly be focused on, one, its impact, particularly from an ESG lens, so environmental, sustainable and governance standards, and secondly, on experiential learning. And in that, he noted the EdTechX recent partnership with, if I was an American, I would say Z Space, but I'm an Australian, so I'm going to say Z Space. And I will put a link to some of the um, organisations that I mentioned, I'll include links. I'm sure you can Google it, but I'll include links in the show notes and also a link to my uh, summary notes that I've written up on the conference. So in terms of thinking about ESG goals and where EdTechX is going to fit and, and start thinking um, more holistically in that manner, He says we need to be thinking about reach and affordability, about the quality, about efficacy, how well does it really work, sustainability, customer pricing and data security, responsible selling and marketing practices, employee engagement, diversity and inclusion, and business ethics and competitive behaviour. I just really, um, really resonated with me. And then in talking about AR and VR, and as I talk to you, I've just realised there's a typo in my notes on the website, so I'll have to fix that. I've put the AFR and VR, so shout out there to the Financial Review newspapers. Um, Back to where I was. In the significant move to AR and VR, There is uh, research that was quoted saying that education will be one of the most impacted sectors. These are predictions, but nonetheless, I think have currency, along with healthcare that are predicted to be really significant in that use of um, augmented and virtual reality. So the conference program 
included four tracks of concurrent sessions and my focus was mostly on the future of work. So one of the most significant speakers um, at the, the conference was, and I do hope I've pronounced this properly, Jeff Magincolder from Coursera. He dialed in virtually um, for a fireside chat and I found it, as always with Coursera, they're so big and doing so many things, I found it fascinating. At March 2022, Coursera has 102 million registered learners and they had added nearly 21 million in 2021. So 25% year-on-year growth. And okay, it was a pandemic, but that's a significant growth in in the number of their their learners. And of course, unsurprisingly, their revenues have risen from 184 million US dollars in 2019 to 415 million in 2021. He talked about Coursera for Campus, uh, which they launched in 2019, very prescient, uh, given uh, the pandemic. There were, prior to the pandemic, 30 universities subscribing to the platform. And as a subscriber to the platform, you're able to access all of the courses available on the Coursera platform. So there's various universities and Uh, increasingly business and others who load their courses onto the platform and then through Coursera for campus, you've got universities subscribing to the platform so that their learners can access those courses. So 30 subscribers prior to the pandemic and in June 2022, more than 4,000 educational institutions are subscribers. And like many organisations in the post-secondary sector, they're also moving increasingly into uh, micro-credentials. It's actually something that Jeff spoke at uh, back in, I think, 2018 at uh, the same uh, conference in London. When Coursera was starting moving in that direction, they now have more than 4,000 industry micro-credentials and professional certificates through Coursera Campus for Industry. So they're offering courses to uh, predominantly higher education, but at tertiary education institutions as well as to uh, industry. And there's a stack more um, in my notes um, on my website. What was also very interesting to me uh, this year, which was new, were a number of very impressive government speakers addressing the conference. That typically hadn't been the case in earlier years, conferences that I had um, attended. Um, And that's obviously because particularly the European Commission has through the course of the pandemic, I think, um, particularly realised, I don't think they were asleep before that, but I think it's it's particularly focused their attention on the power and influence of ed tech and the need for governments to better understand what is happening in the sector. And so the, um, the speaker who presented 
was really keen to make sure that, A, he informed the conference about what the European Commission is doing, but, B, that this was a sense for him to learn more um, about what the tech sector is doing uh, with a sense of an ongoing dialogue. So in September 2020, the EU launched a new Digital Education Action Plan, 2021 to 27 with 14 actions under two strategic priorities. They're very aware that the European EdTech market is currently very fragmented. Most EdTech providers are micro-businesses and there aren't very many uh, truly large companies. And obviously, in part, that is the language differences um, uh, across the EU. But he spoke about how important the sector had been in times of crisis, not just COVID, but also in helping and supporting learners um, from Ukraine. And that was a, a key um, topic of discussion really throughout the, the conference, as you might imagine. Uh, the Commission is, the European Commission is looking at how to measure the performance of EdTech in terms of learning outcomes and its impact. So again, uh, referencing back to those earlier points made um, by Benjamin and Charles in opening the conference. There is, um, and these are my notes as, as they were um, framed in, in this session, a political recognition of the importance of the sector and the will for cooperation. And, you know, some examples were given. The European EdTech community has been working um, as, as a part of government reaching out to the sector, the EdTech sector have responded. They've put together their own vision document. They're working on, talked about Ukraine, a Ukrainian school hub. Um, providing education to Ukrainian students in their own language, irrespective of where they are living um, across Europe, having fled their country. And on the day of the conference, uh, the European Commission launched a new digital education hub. Um, and again, I'll put links to all of that. They are looking to, and here's the, the three key areas of focus, I guess, and it will be very interesting to see when the Australian government takes similar steps. So the EU is looking at deepening dialogue um, between policymakers and the ed tech sector, promoting public-private partnerships and collaboration, and again, fostering the measurement of outcomes, learning outcomes, that is, impact and quality assurance in ed tech. And then hear this. Those areas, those focus areas will be underpinned by consideration of regulatory approaches and standards. But uh, the intention is not to impose something top down, um, but equally not to leave things in the very fragmented bottom-up state that they currently are, and instead there is going to be some regulation and quality assurance, a bit of checking um, about claims about learning outcomes are going to be introduced, but not imposed upon the sector, worked through with the sector. So again, it will be very interesting to see when, if and how, if, when and how, um, 
we see the same thing happening here in Australia. And to their credit, it's not just, you know, wielding the regulatory stick. There's also um, 10 billion euros available for breakthrough technologies through the European Innovation Council. So they're happy to help fund some more of this innovation, but they do want to see some some standards and tightening there. Um, There was a presentation uh, by Google Cloud um, about the scale of their operations and obviously a suggestion that more people should sign up with them. There's currently 170 million teachers and students worldwide using Google Workspace for education, 150 million teachers and students using Google Classroom. Uh, Google has donated 230 million euros to global education And increasingly, they see that um, artificial intelligence will increasingly become the norm in education, part of every lesson. And of course, institutions will need a cloud partner that they can trust, dot, dot, dot. Um, Then uh, the next session I wanted to share with you was a really, really interesting um, panel discussion. It was notionally two sides of the debate, but it was actually slightly more sophisticated um, conversation than that. So the topic here was, can micro-credentials compete with traditional degrees? And uh, on the panel were um, Professor Mark Brown, who is the director of the National Institute for Digital Learning at Dublin City University, and Joe Angeri, who is the academic director uh, for education and internationalization at the University of Warwick. And again, I hope I've pronounced her name properly. So they were notionally conceived as being pro degrees and formal qualifications. Um, and then Anand Agarwal, who was the founder of edX, now chief open education officer at 2U, but a significant academic background himself. And Jürgen Siebel, another um, senior um, policymaker from uh, Europe, who is the executive director of CEDAFOP, the European Centre for the Development of VET, they were notionally on the pro-micro-credentials, non-degree team, if we're thinking about these two panels. Um It was a fascinating conversation and I guess, you know, I won't go through all the ins and outs. He said, she said. Um, I have done a summary uh, on the website if you're interested. It would be fair to say that the two academics were more in favour of traditional degrees and Mark in particular, somewhat sceptical about some of the claims about micro-credentials. He um, contributed a major review of micro-credentials, was commissioned by the European Commission to do that, and that was used by the Commission in their development of their micro-credential framework. That's the European Commission one. Um, And echoing the the comments uh, earlier, He also believes that there is a really important role for government in setting quality standards for micro-credentials. Anand Agarwal highlighted one of the reasons behind the shift to shorter courses being the cost to learners, and he spoke about the 
MIT Micro Masters, which they established six years ago. And in in total, the the course is 25% of a full master's at MIT. It's free to start. And if you're progressing well, you then charged $1,000 for the course, which is considerably less than the cost of a master's at uh, MIT. And he talked about the significant employment benefits that people had had, the need for modular stackable courses like that being the future. So you could do the micro masters or you could do them in chunks and eventually walk away with the full masters. Um, Joe from Warwick University made the claim that, uh, and Warwick is one of the UK's leading research intensive universities, more like our group of eight, uh, that they don't compete with the micro-credential providers. They're offering different learner pathways, although later on during the discussion, um, and I'm not sure that we're having this conversation yet in Australia. I think there there certainly are differences. um, And it's undoubtedly true that micro-credential providers typically don't compete with our group of eight. But she did note that postgraduate learning and upskilling in the university sector will increasingly focus on shorter and alternative uh, credentials. And Jürgen Siebel just argued there's no need for competition between full quals or, you know, short courses if those short chunks of learning are stackable or components. And I guess in in the VET sector, we've had units of competency as the basis for qualifications um, for for a very long time. And he argued again, and this is, you know, a debate uh, endemic in the Australian vet sector, that the challenge for education regulators is that they can only react to what the employment market needs, and that takes time, whereas, uh, I guess, by implication, the more nimble micro-credential providers, which may not have a regulatory framework, they can, can be more flexible. And um, he shared a, a recent uh, CDFOP study on micro-credentials. There were lots of QR codes on people's um, uh, slides, uh, which made it very easy to, you know, um, take down what their um, hyperlinks uh, were to. So, you know, there we go. Uh, we're all embracing the QR codes in a post-COVID world. And I'll, again, put that in the show notes. Um There was another panel discussion uh, which involved a contributor from the Bank of England who worked in their tech uh, area and talked about the challenges the bank was facing in trying to, and, and really excellent solutions that they had in place to try and diversify, um, their tech team and their tech talent, um, it was anyway. There's some some notes on my website uh, if you're also looking to to do the same. And in that same conversation was Braw Saxberg, who will be known to some Australians from his time as the Chief Learning Officer at Kaplan. In that role, although he was based um, in the US, he spent a, a number of visits um, in Australia, and he shared quite a lot of information about how jobs are changing, the need for upskilling and reskilling, 
And again, a point being, you know, that our National Skills Commissioner and other economists have made here that with the labour markets currently being so tight and unemployment rates being so low, we're seeing employers investing in upskilling and reskilling rather than looking to replace their staff when they need new skills. And um, again, there's some work that uh, Alpha Beta, uh, one of our new parliamentarians, um, did for uh, Google a couple of years ago. And again, I'll um, include the link to that. There was a session um, again, this was all about the future of work, on remote work and remote corporate learning. Um, and that included presenters from uh, the Malaysian energy company Petronas, um, Kahoot, with their focus on games and quizzes and how they'd moved that into um, B2B activity, not just K-12, um, Emerge Education, and Nexford University, there were representatives there, and they all provided quite interesting insights into where different employers and edtech partners were at in terms of remote corporate learning linked to the rise in uh, remote work. And again, I won't get into um, all the nitty gritty on that. You'll find that on uh, in the notes. Um Multiverse, who, if you work in the vet sector, uh, in um, apprenticeships, you may have heard of them. They're an apprenticeship services company headed up by Tony Blair's son, and they've just uh, been out with their Series D funding round, um, had a whole lot of investors put in a whole lot of money uh, to give them a really significant uh, valuation, uh, nearly $2 billion US. Um, and what do they do? Well, in some ways, they're a bit like apprenticeship network providers and our group training uh, organisations. And yes, declaration here, um, I am a non-executive director of MEGT, which uh, sits in this space, obviously, within the Australian context. So Multiverse is providing services that we might already be doing here in Australia. But I think what is interesting to note is that they are using those relationships with employers to offer an additional range of education and training to other workers within the company. And they're using those relationships with the apprentices. The plans are, I guess, it's a fairly new company, but to continue a learning relationship and providing um, support and guidance to those apprentices post their apprenticeship. So looking at uh, those relationships and why has that got anything to do with ed tech? It's all built on substantial data and the insights that are drawn from it. And then there were a number of um, startup and scale-up uh, award finalists, as well as those with the biggest impact or commitment to 
um, ESG goals. And so let me tell you about uh, the winners in each category. Again, I've got the finalists and some links to them, some really interesting uh, companies doing quite interesting things. So in the Startup Awards, the winner was OED, which is not the Oxford English Dictionary, but Objective Ed, which is a US company focusing on reinforcement learning for students at school level uh, with disability, helping improve their educational performance. It was really um, an impressive uh, presentation. In the Scale Up Award finalists, uh, there were a couple there that I uh, knew about and have had an interest in for some time, uh, notably Kahoot, uh, but also Labster. Um, but the winner in this category of the Scale Up Awards was Go Student, which is an Austrian online one-on-one tutoring platform supporting learners in both K-12 and higher education. So interesting to see the whole online tutoring uh, still growing, albeit there's been the the huge scaling back um, of those activities uh, in China where they really um, had the edge for so many years. And then finally, in terms of um, ESG and impact, the winner in this category was a French company, Evidence B, which designs adaptive learning resources for school students based on cognitive science and artificial intelligence. And again, measurable improvements to learners' knowledge acquisition, as well as apparently um, being able to stimulate students' intrinsic motivation for learning. So that is a bit of a run through as we head into uh, EdTech week here Um, in Australia. I really think for the sector, so my takeaways really are, if you're in the EdTech sector, Benjamin and Charles, the co-founders of EdTechX, are absolutely on the money. It's time to be very honest about what worked and what could have been done better during COVID and to be really focused on uh, impact and ethical business practices going forward. I think it's time for the Australian government to be seriously looking at EdTech. Uh, We've seen the announcement uh, just yesterday from TEXA that there's been some amendments to uh, their powers to um, engage with the communications regulators and they've been able to quite promptly ban uh, 40 websites offering um, academic cheating services. Um, That's a really good and important regulatory response, but there is a different and more nuanced regulatory response, which I think the Australian government, states and territories could be looking to what the European Commission is doing. Um, And I really think there's some lessons to learn there. And if you're a provider that does online learning, you've got to go beyond Zoom and PDF. And there's a lot out there and it's not all high cost that can make the learning that you offer educationally rich and having a real impact to improve students' learning beyond 
the the traditional face-to-face. If you work in a provider and you're not doing a whole lot in online, you you did do the Zoom classroom and or the Google classroom, whichever one you you choose your platform, Teams, whatever, um, others are available. Um, If you did that with PowerPoints and uh, and you're desperate to to go back to to -to face-to-face learning, I would suggest having a think about how you live the rest of your life outside of your education institution. So the rest of our lives are becoming uh, more online and more digital and where students choose to have more of their learning online, uh, we need to make sure that is it, it is as educationally rich as possible. So there was some research released in the US uh, just in the last uh, week or so in a New America survey showing that a majority of Americans, that's 55%, say the quality of online education is the same as or better than in-person education. People's preferences are changing and our world is becoming more digital. And I do think if you're a provider which doesn't do a lot of online education at the moment, and I hear already, uh, if you're a vet provider, you might be gnashing your teeth and rolling your eyes and going, well, you know, my training package says I have to do this in the workplace or there's requirements. Yes, of course, there are those requirements. But again, I think this is where the, this is where the power of virtual reality and augmented reality really opens up significant opportunities for the vet sector. And I'm going to start where I ended um, with a suggestion to you to have a look at Z space, Z space. Uh, There are, of course, dozens of um, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, providers, platforms, programs, etc. But theirs is a very nice example of just how educationally sound, um, interesting and engaging, immersive technology is becoming. And this isn't people stumbling around with uh, giant things on the headsets on their head, um, wandering around in pretend universes. Um, do have a look at it. If you're a bit sceptical, check it out and uh, send me some feedback. Let me know what you think. So I hope this slightly discursive ramble through uh, my notes and reflections on the EdTechX conference have been useful. Some really interesting guests lined up uh, for the next few episodes of the podcast. So back to me talking to two experts in the sector. I hope you found this one a useful episode. Thanks for listening. <music>